Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Right, Dan, I want you to be honest. You spent most of the end of last week scrolling and refreshing, didn't you? Wait, what? Something something happened last week? Something big? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. I'll just come out and admit it. I didn't think I'd ever be quite as familiar with the particular political leanings of specific Atlanta suburbs, DeKalb County and Fullerton County and those sort of things. Yeah, it's, I detect a little bit of fatigue there in your voice, Dan. I feel like that's maybe a bit of a risk here. Yeah, I think we have to recognise that many listeners might be bordering on being a little bit sick of US politics right now. But in danger of prolonging that conversation, we wanted to move things on a little bit and start talking about what this means for investors, particularly what all this means potentially for UK-based investors. And for that conversation, we're delighted to welcome back a regular guest now on Investment Uncut, Natalie Brain. Natalie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Hi, Natalie. So I think maybe before we jump in properly to the discussion today, if we could maybe start with what we were expecting pre-election. So I guess if we roll back a few months, you know, all the polls were saying strong Biden victory, clean sweep, blue wave, all, all those sorts of headlines. And I guess in a blue wave type scenario, you'd get Bidenomics to the max, if you like. All of the policies that he's been sort of talking around, you, you'd expect to be able to be implemented. So perhaps if we start there and then we'll compare that to what Trump was talking about as a sort of bookend and then see where we get to with the results as we've seen them. Absolutely. As you've said, I'm referring to polls and early expectations. I mean, this has been another case of showing just how difficult it is for polls to accurately forecast things. I mean, I think Fair to say that last week probably unravelled a bit differently to the polls were saying. In the end, they were wrong by a lot, between 4 and 7%, I think, right, was, was where what we're coming out now, it looks like, which is a pretty big miss in polling terms. And the same issue basically is in 2016, which is pretty unforgivable, really, in some ways. Absolutely. And I mean, it's hard to tell if it's just a Trump specific element and we've got Trump supporters not wanting to or not saying where they have been voting. It's an interesting one to see that pattern come back again, whereas I think a lot of models have been updated and there was a lot of expectation that the polls were better this time. It shows just how hard it is to do. In terms of policies then, as you've said, Mary, so some of the strongest policies which Biden had been talking about, or Democrats, was looking at fiscal support package. We know Trump wasn't able to agree another extension to fiscal support before the election. So that's one of the biggest focuses um, that we're looking at at the moment. The Democrats' stance, so Biden's take on large companies and tax hikes is quite strong. So looking at bringing in kind of significant tax hikes for large companies and tech companies as well. And climate change is another big one. So being much more supportive of taking action on climate change compared to Trump. And another one to highlight is kind of policy overseas with China, if we're looking at China trade policy. I think there are some elements of Biden's policy which also echo some of the protectionist stances to Trump. But I think the expectations are that it, we wouldn't be seeing those strong tariffs coming in as we did with Trump or would have done if Trump was to continue. So probably, yeah, very different expectations on the trade front. 
I guess one of the features, say the obvious maybe of this election has been that the debate hasn't really been in the economic policy area, has it? Let's be honest. There've been other things which have been bigger. So it feels like there hasn't been a big focus on the economic agenda. But you know, also from the stuff I've read about Biden, he does seem to be more of a sort of pragmatic centrist and, and doesn't really have these really strong driving ideals that you can kind of really draw out would give a huge impact on things generally, right? It seems to have been a sort of a pragmatist centrist and, and have various other other things going on. Yeah, there is always a risk with a pragmatist that you end up with different factions of your own party actually feeling that their own policies aren't being implemented properly. And I, and I suppose it's a role that's very important when you've got a very broad party with lots of different views. You probably do need a pragmatist to be leading it, hence why he's in that role. But there is always a risk of criticism, I think. It's a good point because a lot of the Democratic Party, I guess, is quite far to the left of where Biden is. So a lot of the central candidates had much stronger and more aggressive policies on, on fiscal stimulus. You know, there were some huge percentages of GDP being bandied around for the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of nominations. So it's a good point. Yeah. Biden's policy, was it about 3% of GDP that they sort of were talking about sort of mid last week? Is that yeah. Should we quickly contrast then, if we just talked about the, the major tenets, if you like, of Bidenomics, maybe a quick contrast with what the major sort of themes were from, from Trumponomics, and that'll give us that idea of what might be likely to change. Natalie, how would you characterise some of the major economic policy stances that Trump has taken over the last four years? I suppose the trade policy, which I've mentioned, is really key. So just how strong he was on that. And just to dig on that quickly, so that's broadly him saying that he believes that large trade deficits are the result of bad deal-making and are to be sort of negotiated away, basically. So he wanted smaller trade deficits. China to buy more US stuff, basically, right, was really at the heart of a lot of those trade wars. Yeah, exactly. And trying to bring US back into the front and put a harder stance on China and, and also some of the practices and regulations they have in place there. So whether that's intellectual property rights or things like that, so putting some harder rules on China and using trade in which, as a way to do that. And then there's the very kind of supportive policy for companies. So like we saw back in 2016, as soon as Trump came back in, it was very tax cuts that boosted markets hugely. And that is complete polar opposite to what Biden's saying he wants to do. Yeah. And more accommodative regulation, I guess, was a fairly big part of Trumponomics too. Yeah. And that's where the environment comes in, obviously, right? Because I think a lot of the regulations that Trump was able to roll back through executive order were on environmental protection regulations. But of course, the big one, Paris Climate Accord, which um, Trump pulled the US out of as well now. Yeah, definitely. So I guess we are where we are. The week after the election, and while it took a bit longer than maybe some of us expected to get the result, we sort of have a result. I guess we've had an acceptance speech from Biden. We've not necessarily had acknowledgement from Trump. I think he's been playing quite a lot of golf instead. But where we are is we've got Biden winning the White House, but we've obviously got this divided Senate and Congress not having a sort of majority overall. So that must limit what Biden's able to actually implement. And maybe we just touch now on where we think things might go in the context of that. Yeah, it's hugely important, the outcome of Congress. And as you've said, with the expectation for that to be split rather than the, the previous expectations of a blue wave. In terms of the kind of three points that I drew out first about Biden, so fiscal policy supporters as one of them. Even with a split Congress, we do still expect to see a pretty substantial fiscal policy come in and support package come in early next year. It's probably less generous than it would have been had it just been a Democrat win. 
but there are still incentives for Republican senators to still support and get some kinds of levels of this support through. I mean, we haven't even got through this one yet, but if we do look ahead two years down the line, there are a lot of Republican senator seats that will be up for another vote. So if we're looking at fiscal support packages that would directly or could directly support some of those voters, they do have some reasons to help that get through to some extent anyway, even if not as much as you might have seen with a full Democrat Congress. I think there was broadly bipartisan support for stimulus anyway, wasn't there? I mean, they'd already had a package passed. There was some signs of support for a second one. It was just more of a difference over the, the sort of the size of it, and which I guess is just something that you haggle over and, and, and you sort of want to arrive at a compromise on it. Exactly. And I guess when you're talking about haggling and arriving at a compromise, back to sort of Biden being the pragmatist, maybe that actually is a benefit. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are saying he's worked with Mitch McConnell before. It's potentially quite a big advantage, um, certainly during the Obama years, when towards the end of it, when the Senate was um, Republican then, and has a good relationship with him, apparently. That's something to bear in mind. Yeah. And I thought it was quite a sort of build back better slogan that Biden obviously used through his campaign. Thinking about sort of the spending, so spending on green infrastructure and spending on ensuring that the US is a stronger exporter, actually depending how you look at it. So some people might look at that and say, okay, that's brilliant because it's good for the environment. And others might look at it and say, well, that's brilliant because we have a stronger trade position. And actually you end up with the same good result and two different people, two opposing opinions might like it for quite different reasons. But as long as you can bring them together and persuade them both that they want to do it, actually that could be where Biden's got a really key strength, I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. Just quickly before we move on, I guess, I mean, we're obviously talking very much talking around Biden being the president and talking about this sort of divided Congress. And I guess maybe just touch quickly on both of those, because neither of those are necessarily 100% done deal. I mean, I guess on the Biden point, I listened to a good a good webinar earlier on that made the point that investors probably need to look through the Trump legal cases that are happening right now, just because of the breadth of the margin of Biden's victory in the end, that it would look like you'd need a good few states to be overturned, and it'd be really very hard to see that happening. Beyond that, I'm not going to add any value to that debate, so I don't propose to talk about that for much longer. I'm sure there's some better legal scholars out there who can who can add value to that. And then the other one, of course, is the point on the Senate, because there are two Georgia Senate seats that are going to go to a runoff in January, I think. Early January would be a result there. If the Democrats were to win both of those, it'd be a 50-50 Senate with the tie being broken by potentially being Kamala Harris, the, the vice president, a chance of a Democrat-leaning Senate in that scenario. But I think it's fair to say the markets are not currently expecting that to be particularly high probability, I, I think. And I interpret that as just because they're assuming that the chance of Democrats winning both those Senate races in Georgia is quite small because of the natural tendency of, of Georgia to be a Republican sort of voting state in the past. Yeah, that's right. I think your point about the markets kind of, yeah, taking it to be a split Congress is an interesting one because that's what we've seen come through in in terms of market reaction on the kind of ignoring the tax hikes of large companies and having the expectation that that will be dampened down quite considerably with the Republicans if they did keep the Senate. And we have seen some of that reaction come through for continuing to be supportive for tech companies, which if it was to go fully the other way to the Democrats, then there would be harsher it is funny, isn't it, interpreting the market reaction? Because I feel like the, the story has just changed so much that people are using to sort of explain market reactions, right? I mean, to begin with, it seemed that markets were positive about the blue waves, were rallying on the back of the blue wave because of the stimulus. And then suddenly it was going to be divided. And then and all of a sudden it was like, well, hang on, no, markets love divided governments because nothing happens. And that's great. And it was kind of like, well, come on, make your mind up. Like, what do markets like? 
I even saw one headline last week when news outlet put out a headline saying, it looks like it's heading towards the worst possible outcome for markets. And I thought to myself, when I was told the market that, the market was up like five, six percent. Like someone needs to tell the market that apparently it's a bad outcome. But um, we're sitting here today on Monday, aren't we? Even before today, the US markets, I think we're up about six percent from the day before the election. Obviously, there's been some very positive market news today as well, hasn't there? So it's probably another three or four percent on top of that as well. But certainly would seem that the market reaction was positive. It's consistent with a what you call a risk on move, I guess, right? Risk assets generally rallying pretty heavily. Yeah. Even as the election was getting even more close than anyone sort of anticipated during last week, interestingly, markets normally dislike uncertainty. And actually, US equities were not bad throughout last week, which I thought was quite interesting. It just goes to show how hard it is to trade these political events, right? And why you shouldn't be really based on your portfolio too much on it. Because even if someone had told you what the outcome was going to be, you probably would have got the positioning wrong to make the most of it. You, you know, if someone had told you, it's not going to be decided for a few days. There's going to be legal cases. It's going to be all divided. You might have said, oh, dear, that's going to be really bad news. Maybe we should hedge or get out of equities, but it would have been completely the wrong thing to do. So, you know, it's a good lesson. If we stick on market reaction just for a bit, it's not that the market's gone up completely universally, I suppose, is it? So we've, as you said, Dan, we've seen tech stocks looking particularly strong, but then sort of banks, maybe infrastructure, renewables, those sorts of areas looking a little bit weaker than than some other stocks. And I guess, again, that reflects, as, as you were saying, Natalie, the, the expectation that some of those policies that could be positive for infrastructure, positive for renewables, will perhaps be a bit more dampened in, a, in such a close administration as, as we're expecting now. Yeah, that's right. But still, just to come back to the point on climate change and the potential for the split Congress, our expectation or, or my expectation is that there will still be quite meaningful progress. That there is definitely a real change of stance that Biden's bringing in and with really changing the dynamics of how the world tackles climate change with the US is leaning more towards Europe's stance and you've got two of the major trading blocks being supportive for, for climate change and perhaps with the ability to really change or put pressure on China as to what they do. Again, we've said that that is a bit weakened if they don't have kind of the, the clean sweep. But I think I would still expect there to be some progress. A lot of the kind of quid pro quo workings in place about how things get through and are agreed. And it might be that budgets for certain states are agreed if they'll support that type of climate policy. So with it being one of Biden's key focuses and key policies, I still think that is quite meaningful. He said, I think, that he'll rejoin the Paris Agreement on day one, I think, hasn't he? So one hope it doesn't become a partisan issue that such that future Republican president just comes out of it again and it becomes a sort of a bit of a ping pong. That would be a shame. But that has meaning, doesn't it? Even, even if it's a bit optical, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And he has set targets for being carbon neutral or having a much stronger stance on achieving that, setting goals, making it be other countries as well, be kind of measurable against their targets, having them in place. So there is a a big change there. And I guess the reason he can get some of that through is by going down the executive order route rather than going down the sort of Congress route. What other areas have you guys seen referred to that he can sort of use that similar route for of his policies, even if it's in a more dampened approach? There was a lot of environmental regulations, I think, that Trump was able to roll back through executive order. So I think restrictions on fossil fuels and coal and gas and those sort of things. So we could well see a flip back of those sort of to where they were. I think that was one of the major areas where Trump managed his sort of deregulation, where most of the Trump deregulation agenda focused. Yeah. On tax, so we talked at the start about how 
Biden was supports sort of higher corporate tax and potentially higher tax for the real top earners. And clearly Trump in his time in office has been reducing tax. And that's obviously been viewed as very positive for business. With the sort of divided Senate, as we've sort of touched on a few times, what do we think is likely to be the outcome on tax? Because I suppose what Trump put in place effectively with a few sort of nuanced differences, Biden was looking to unwind. Do we think that he's going to be able to push those sorts of things through? And should he, I guess, in the current environment where everyone's sort of suffering with the effects of COVID, is now the right time to raise taxes? That is a good question. A hard one, I'd say. I don't know realistically how much he will actually be able to get through on that. And like you say, timing of it when he'd be looking to do it. I'd expect there might be some change. I don't know if it would be immediate that or kind of signalling for some move. But I think that is one area that I would expect to be much weaker than if it was a Democrat clean sweep. Um, Let's talk about trade quickly, perhaps, and the impact on, on emerging markets. Emerging market indices are up pretty substantially, and not just China. I think a lot of the local currency um, bonds and things are up quite a lot as well last week or so. The impact that Trump's trade stance had on emerging markets, Natalie, I mean, how would you sort of characterise that and then how that might change under a Biden administration? The biggest change being in that the kind of tariffs that Trump's been having in place on China, really with the expectation that that won't continue under Biden. That does have significant impact. So on emerging markets, it really did weigh on global trade and on a lot of those markets over the last few years. It was quite remarkable, the scale of the tariffs that Trump brought in time after time and with it being retaliated in China. So I'd say that is a very different tack. I think we're not going to see those kind of tariffs come in. It's not just a scale of the tariffs, it's almost a threat of future tariffs that's worse, isn't it? You know, markets always dislike some risk that's out there. So I've heard people saying that removing that sort of Trump tariff risk premium from emerging markets, just having that out of the way and having the promise of a more stable policy towards emerging market exporters is that by itself creates quite a big tailwind for equities. Yeah, and I think the key word there really for me anyway is stability. I think it's not necessarily an expectation that Biden will roll over backwards and be super, super accommodative. He's still got the sort of wanting America's supply side to be particularly strong. And he'll reflect that, I I presume, in trade policy. But I think the stability of trade policy is something that should benefit global trade, not just with emerging markets. Another area that I think is quite interesting, I've seen a bit of comment on the appointments that President Biden might make to various key roles, because I guess they're something that that are largely under his control. Of course, they need to be voted on by by the Senate. And I guess key ones there for markets being presumably Treasury Secretary, the chair of the Fed, which I think is up for um, change in the next year or 2022, I can't remember exactly when. And then I guess maybe Department of Justice as well. So I suppose all three of those could have implications for different aspects of markets. Is it Treasury and Justice that have never had a non-white male person in position? I think, is it those two? Exactly, yeah. So we're hopefully going to see a little bit of, bit of diversity coming into those roles, which Yeah, which can only be a good thing. And I guess it's interesting because I haven't read loads on this, but it it feels like the rhetoric around it is slightly more focused on, that I've read anyway, it's slightly more focused on that aspect. So good because you get diversity of thought, all of that sort of stuff. Clearly, the people that are being considered are very well experienced or they wouldn't be in those positions, but more to do with shaking things up, if you like, in what I've read. And I think another theme there is, again, just back to the, if the Senate's under Republican control, that moderates a little bit who he can try and push through or try and get in. So maybe on on balance, it maybe takes away some of the more extreme 
potential nominations. Example that's being talked about a lot, I think, is that Elizabeth Warren was being talked about for the for the Treasury Secretary role, but that's potentially less likely under a Republican controlled Senate. So a more centrist candidate there might might become more likely. Yeah. It wouldn't only necessarily be Democrats that are pointed into these positions, I guess, and maybe those sort of headline ones, it, it's much more likely that they're Democratic individuals. But actually having some Republicans on that list, again, for the sort of pragmatic approach and trying to get things through the Senate, actually looking beneficial. We've obviously talked about Bidenomics, Trumponomics, where we think we are today. Markets so far seem to have reacted pretty positively, but this can't be all amazingly good news. Let's just take a few minutes speaking about potentially the bear case. So I guess we've got Biden in power. We've got a divided Senate. We've got some potential senators that could be slightly difficult. Trump is clearly not in that picture, but he's not disappeared completely. And he still is throwing his weight around. And who knows how long it will take him to admit defeat assuming that is the way that the sort of legal cases uh, come out, which I think is everyone's expectation at the moment, he still has the power to cause some problems, I suppose, and get in the way of certain things going through. We haven't yet touched on the fact that this was the election with the two oldest candidates ever in history. We've obviously got that to think about as well. I have to admit, I was slightly surprised that Kamala Harris wasn't taking slightly more of a dominant role in some of the campaigning, if you like, because it feels like she might play a bigger role this time around than in some previous terms of office is my view. We've also touched on the divided Senate. We've got the Georgia seats up for grabs, if you like, in January, but another, is it another third of seats being debated in two years time? And obviously that's only halfway through Biden's time. And I guess at the moment, we're certainly not going to be trusting the polls and things could potentially go either way on that. So either a stronger majority or, or in fact, lose loss of control for Biden. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you talk about the bear case, and I think it's a point very well made. I mean, John Authors, the Bloomberg opinion columnist, wrote a good column on that this morning. We'll link to it in the show notes. And he was making exactly that point under his bear case, saying that it's likely to be an unusually short honeymoon here for the new president. Firstly, because Trump, he's likely to have real political power. So think of him as like a leader of the opposition and a very vocal, obstructive opposition. And so for the next four years or whatever, he's going to be a, a big figure and it's likely to be um, blocking things, to getting in the way of what Biden wants to do. And again, to your point, Mary, because of Biden's age, there's going to be a lot of politicking going on to figure out who should be sort of replacing him, which to some extent is already happening in the Democratic Party. And there's, as you've alluded to, there's quite a broad church underneath the Democratic Party. There's not necessarily one faction by any means that has control over that. So potentially quite a lot of infighting could be likely among, among the Democrats, which is not necessarily sort of positive for progress. So um, although this election has been resolved, there's a lot of politics to go over the next four years, five years, six years in the US, I guess. And so plenty more risk and uncertainty there. So who knows when the market is going to start to switch focusing on that, I guess, rather than focusing on the certainty that we now have from this particular election. And I guess politics aside, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. And I think probably the markets reacted positively to Biden saying we're going to get this under control. But there have been many countries trying harder than Trump has to get this under control, and we're still seeing rising cases globally. And I suppose that the honeymoon lasts however long until people sort of face the reality of that once again. Absolutely. Should we talk about Brexit quickly? I mean, it, a conversation with Natalie wouldn't be complete without Brexit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Brexit negotiations are still going on. I think I must have said that with a bit of surprise for quite a few times now. With just the deadlines just getting extended on, on and on and on. 
But with a focus on US election, I mean, this does mean that the UK and, and Boris Johnson is now going to have to be negotiating with Biden, which is pretty different when compared to, I guess, his relationship with Trump. And of course, there is potential for that to be complicated further by the quite controversial internal markets bill, which the UK is debating at the moment. And that just with the impact, with the implications for that to kind of override the withdrawal agreement, largely focusing on policy around Northern Ireland and how borders are treated, paperwork, movement of goods and all of that, which Biden has said pretty strongly that if there were kind of any impact on the Good Friday Agreement, which again is the relations in, in Ireland, that he's got quite a strong stance on that. So where the internal markets bill is seen as kind of breaking international law, Biden would take quite a strong line against that. So there are a few complications with what goes on with Brexit negotiations over the next few weeks, and then also what that might mean for negotiating trade policy with the US as well. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, one thing I took away from a podcast I listened to over the weekend was the fact that as much as we think it's the most important thing in the world, it's probably not a strategic priority for the new Biden administration. There's quite a few things running ahead of it as far as they're concerned. And I don't know, we might well feel that coming through in terms of their commitment and focus on it. Who knows? Yeah, on the global scale, Brexit isn't up there. But like you say, for the UK, for us, it is. It's interesting. So Natalie, we've covered a whole load of different areas of US politics today. It's the most I've ever spoken about it, I think, in my life. To sort of cut through some of the noise and I guess cut through some of the policies, what do you see as a sort of central scenario? What one message do you want listeners to take away from this episode about the future of the economy? In terms of our central scenarios, as we've spoken about before, we have our central case upside and downside. And we have spoken on the last couple of episodes that I've been on about just how wide the bands have been for the probabilities around those. And we have narrowed them a little bit this time. And we've actually nudged a little bit up from the downside into central case and upside. That might seem surprising given we're facing a strong second wave and things are still seeming very uncertain and cases rising hugely and lockdown too in the UK. But I think the message around that is really just how strong all the supportive policy has been. I think when we were looking at this back in March and then trying to decide what to do with these scenarios, we were very un clear about how everything would play out but we've seen all of that policy we've seen so much of it come in so quickly be really supportive and we're not expecting that to change so I think in some ways that can kind of underpin what we're thinking is going to happen in our outlook for the global economy with that remaining in place for a long time and we're not expecting that to be removed. In some ways no change there but there's that support being a really key thing and the US election having really not really changed much on that front. Exactly yeah so in, in terms of overall outlook not feeding through into our, our high-level themes as much. Yep. And Natalie, what do you think has been the most underappreciated thing about the recent US election and, and politics in that regard? Well, we're talking about underappreciated. So I suppose what's maybe been overappreciated or put maybe too much emphasis on was just listening to the polls ahead of the votes. And again, probably just signalling how difficult it is. We might have thought they'd been improved for this time, but things did play out pretty differently. And just, yeah, how difficult it is to rely on those. I guess feeding through to how difficult it is to invest around an event like the US election as well. Very difficult to predict in advance. Yeah, absolutely. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Thanks. 
podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.